Chapter forty six, part three of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, volume four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, volume four, by Edward Gibbon. Chapter forty six, Troubles in Persia, part three. A daughter of Phocus, his only child, was given in marriage to the patrician Crispus and the royal images of the bride and bridegroom were indiscreetly placed in the circus, by the side of the emperor. The father must desire that his posterity should inherit the fruit of his crimes, but the monarch was offended by this premature and popular association. The tribunes of the green faction, who accused the officious heir of their sculptors, were condemned to instant death. Their lives were granted to the prayers of the people, but Crispus might reasonably doubt whether a jealous usurper could forget and pardon his involuntary competition. The green faction was alienated by the ingratitude of Phocus and the loss of their privileges. Every province of the empire was ripe for rebellion, and Heraclius, exarch of Africa, persisted above two years in refusing all tribute and obedience to the centurion who disgraced the throne of Constantinople. By the secret emissaries of Crispus and the Senate, the independent exarch was solicited to save and govern his country, but his ambition was chilled by age, and he resigned the dangerous enterprise to his son, Heraclius, and to Nicetas, the son of Gregory, his friend and lieutenant. The powers of Africa were armed by the two adventurous youths. They agreed that the one should navigate the fleet from Carthage to Constantinople, that the other should lead an army through Egypt and Asia, and that the imperial purple should be the reward of diligence and success. A faint rumor of their undertaking was conveyed to the ears of Phocus, and the wife and mother of the younger Heraclius were secured as the hostages of his faith. But the treacherous heart of Crispus extenuated the distant peril, the means of defense were neglected or delayed, and the tyrant supinely slept till the African navy cast anchor in the Hellespont. Their standard was joined at Abydus by the fugitives and exiles who thirsted for revenge. The ships of Heraclius, whose lofty masts were adorned with the holy symbols of religion, steered their triumphant course through the Propontis, and Phocus beheld from the windows of the palace his approaching and inevitable fate. The green faction was tempted, by gifts and promises, to oppose a feeble and fruitless resistance to the landing of the Africans but the people, and even the guards, were determined by the well-timed defection of Crispus, and the tyrant was seized by a private enemy, who boldly invaded the solitude of the palace. Stripped of the diadem and purple, clothed in a vile habit, and loaded with chains, he was transported in a small boat to the imperial galley of Heraclius, who reproached him with the crimes of his abominable reign. Wilt thou govern better? were the last words of the despair of Phocus. After suffering each variety of insult and torture, his head was severed from his body, the mangled trunk was cast into the flames, and the same treatment was inflicted on the statues of the vain usurper, and the seditious banner of the green faction. The voice of the clergy, the senate, and the people invited Heraclius to ascend the throne which he had purified from guilt and ignominy. After some graceful hesitation he yielded to their entreaties. His coronation was accompanied by that of his wife Eudoxia, and their posterity, till the fourth generation continued to reign over the empire of the East. The voyage of Heraclius had been easy and prosperous, 
the tedious march of Nicetas was not accomplished before the decision of the contest, but he submitted without a murmur to the fortune of his friend, and his laudable intentions were rewarded with an equestrian statue, and a daughter of the emperor. It was more difficult to trust the fidelity of Crispus, whose recent services were recompensed by the command of the Cappadocian army. His arrogance soon provoked, and seemed to excuse, the ingratitude of his new sovereign. In the presence of the Senate, the son-in-law of Phocus was condemned to embrace the monastic life, and the sentence was justified by the weighty observation of Heraclius, that the man who had betrayed his father could never be faithful to his friend. Even after his death the Republic was afflicted by the crimes of Phocus, which armed with a pious cause the most formidable of her enemies. According to the friendly and equal forms of the Byzantine and Persian courts, he announced his exultation to the throne, and his ambassador Lilius, who had presented him with the heads of Maurice and his sons, was the best qualified to describe the circumstances of the tragic scene. However it might be varnished by fiction or sophistry, Chosros turned with horror from the assassin, imprisoned the pretended envoy, disclaimed the usurper, and declared himself the avenger of his father and benefactor. The sentiments of grief and resentment, which humanity would feel, and honor would dictate, promoted on this occasion the interest of the Persian king, and his interest was powerfully magnified by the national and religious prejudices of the magi and satraps. In a strain of artful adulation, which assumed the language of freedom, they presumed to censure the excess of his gratitude and friendship for the Greeks, a nation with whom it was dangerous to conclude either peace or alliance, whose superstition was devoid of truth and justice, and who must be incapable of any virtue, since they could perpetrate the most atrocious of crimes, the impious murder of their sovereign. For the crime of an ambitious centurion, the nation which he oppressed was chastised with the calamities of war, and the same calamities, at the end of twenty years, were retaliated and redoubled on the heads of the Persians. The general who had restored Chosros to the throne still commanded in the east, and the name of Narsus was the formidable sound with which the Assyrian mothers were accustomed to terrify their infants. It is not improbable that a native subject of Persia should encourage his master and his friend to deliver and possess the provinces of Asia. It is still more probable that Chosros should animate his troops by the assurance that the sword which they dreaded the most would remain in its scabbard, or be drawn in their favor. The hero could not depend on the faith of a tyrant, and the tyrant was conscious how little he deserved the obedience of a hero. Narsus was removed from his military command, he reared an independent standard at Heriopolis, in Syria, he was betrayed by fallacious promises, and burnt alive in the market-place of Constantinople. Deprived of the only chief whom they could fear or esteem, the bands which he had led to victory were twice broken by the cavalry, trampled by the elephants, and pierced by the arrows of the barbarians, and a great number of the captives were beheaded on the field of battle by the sentence of the victor, who might justly condemn these seditious mercenaries as the authors or accomplices of the death of Maurice. Under the reign of Phocus, the fortifications of Murden, Dara, Amida, and Edessa were successively besieged, reduced, and destroyed by the Persian monarch. He passed the Euphrates, occupied the Syrian cities, Heriopolis, Chalcis, and Berhia, or Aleppo, and soon encompassed the walls of Antioch with his irresistible arms. 
the rapid tide of success discloses the decay of the empire, the incapacity of Phocas, and the disaffection of his subjects, and Chosroes provided a decent apology for their submission or revolt, by an impostor who attended his camp as the son of Maurice, and the lawful heir of the monarchy. The first intelligence from the east which Heraclius received was that of the loss of Antioch, but the aged metropolis, so often overturned by earthquakes and pillaged by the enemy, could supply but a small and languid stream of treasure and blood. The Persians were equally successful and more fortunate in the sack of Caesarea, the capital of Cappadocia, and as they advanced beyond the ramparts of the frontier, the boundary of ancient war, they found a less obstinate resistance and a more plentiful harvest. The pleasant vale of Damascus has been adorned in every age with a royal city. Her obscure felicity has hitherto escaped the historian of the Roman Empire. But Chosros reposed his troops in the paradise of Damascus before he ascended the hills of Libanus, or invaded the cities of the Phoenician coast. The conquest of Jerusalem, which had been meditated by Nishirvan, was achieved by the zeal and avarice of his grandson. The ruin of the proudest monument of Christianity was vehemently urged by the intolerant spirit of the Magi, and he could enlist for this holy warfare with an army of six and twenty thousand Jews, whose furious bigotry might compensate, in some degree, for the want of valor and discipline. After the reduction of Galilee, and the region beyond the Jordan, whose resistance appears to have delayed the fate of the capital, Jerusalem itself was taken by assault. The sepulchre of Christ, and the stately churches of Helena and Constantine, were consumed, or at least damaged, by the flames. The devout offerings of three hundred years were rifled in one sacrilegious day. The patriarch Zechariah and the true cross were transported into Persia, and the massacre of ninety thousand Christians is imputed to the Jews and Arabs, who swelled the disorder of the Persian march. The fugitives of Palestine were entertained at Alexandria by the charity of John the Archbishop, who is distinguished among a crowd of saints by the epithet of almsgiver, and the revenues of the church, with a treasure of three hundred thousand pounds, were restored to the true proprietors, the poor of every country and every denomination." but Egypt itself, the only province which had been exempt, since the time of Diocletian, from foreign and domestic war, was again subdued by the successors of Cyrus. Pelusium, the key of that impervious country, was surprised by the cavalry of the Persians. They passed with impunity the innumerable channels of the delta, and explored the long valley of the Nile, from the pyramids of Memphis to the confines of Ethiopia. Alexandria might have been relieved by a naval force, but the archbishop and the prefect embarked for Cyprus, and Chosros entered the second city of the empire, which still preserved a wealthy remnant of industry and commerce. His western trophy was erected, not on the walls of Carthage, but in the neighborhood of Tripoli. The Greek colonies of Cyrene were finally extirpated, and the conqueror, treading in the footsteps of Alexander, returned in triumph through the sands of the Libyan desert. In the same campaign another army advanced from the Euphrates to the Thracian Bosphorus, Chalcedon surrendered after a long siege, and a Persian camp was maintained above ten years in the presence of Constantinople. The seacoast of Pontus, the city of Ancyra, and the Isle of Rhodes are enumerated among the last conquests of the great king, 
and if Chosros had possessed any maritime power, his boundless ambition would have spread slavery and desolation over the provinces of Europe. From the long-disputed banks of the Tigris and Euphrates, the reign of the grandson of Nishirvan was suddenly extended to the Hellespont and the Nile, the ancient limits of the Persian monarchy. But the provinces, which had been fashioned by the habits of six hundred years to the virtues and vices of the Roman government, supported with reluctance the yoke of the barbarians. The idea of a republic was kept alive by the institutions, or at least by the writings, of the Greeks and Romans, and the subjects of Heraclius had been educated to pronounce the words of liberty and law. But it has always been the pride and policy of Oriental princes to display the titles and attributes of their omnipotence, to upbraid a nation of slaves with their true name and abject condition, and to enforce, by cruel and insolent threats, the rigor of their absolute commands. The Christians of the East were scandalized by the worship of fire, and the impious doctrine of the two principles. The Magi were not less tolerant than the bishops, and the martyrdom of some native Persians, who had deserted the religion of Zoroaster, was conceived to be the prelude of a fierce and general persecution. By the oppressive laws of Justinian, the adversaries of the church were made the enemies of the state. The alliance of the Jews, Nestorians, and Jacobites had contributed to the success of Chosros, and his partial favor to the sectaries provoked the hatred and fears of the Catholic clergy. Conscious of their fear and hatred, the Persian conqueror governed his new subjects with an iron scepter, and, as if he suspected the stability of his dominion, he exhausted their wealth by exorbitant tributes and licentious rapine, despoiled or demolished the temples of the East, and transported to his hereditary realms the gold, the silver, the precious marbles, the arts, and the artists of the Asiatic cities. In the obscure picture of the calamities of the empire, it is not easy to discern the figure of Chosros himself, to separate his actions from those of his lieutenants, or to ascertain his personal merit in the general blaze of glory and magnificence. He enjoyed with ostentation the fruits of victory, and frequently retired from the hardships of war to the luxury of the palace. But in the space of twenty-four years he was deterred by superstition or resentment from approaching the gates of Ctesiphon, and his favorite residence of Artemida, or Dastagird, was situate beyond the Tigris, about sixty miles to the north of the capital. The adjacent pastures were covered with flocks and herds. The paradise, or park, was replenished with pheasants, peacocks, ostriches, roebucks, and wild boars, and the noble game of lions and tigers was sometimes turned loose for the bolder pleasures of the chase. Nine hundred and sixty elephants were maintained for the use or splendor of the great king, his tents and baggage were carried into the field by twelve thousand great camels and eight thousand of a smaller size, and the royal stables were filled with six thousand mules and horses, among whom the names of Shebdiz and Barid are renowned for their speed or beauty. Six thousand guards successively mounted before the palace gate, the service of the interior apartments was performed by twelve thousand slaves, and in the number of three thousand virgins, the fairest of Asia, some happy concubine might console her master for the age or the indifference of Syrah. The various treasures of gold, silver, gems, silks, and aromatics were deposited in a hundred subterraneous vaults, and the chamber, Badaverd, noted the accidental gift of the winds which had wafted the spoils of Heraclius into one of the Syrian harbors of his rival. 
the vice of flattery and perhaps of fiction is not ashamed to compute the thirty thousand rich hangings that adorned the walls the forty thousand columns of silver or more probably of marble and plated wood that supported the roof and the thousand globes of gold suspended in the dome to imitate the motions of the planets and the constellations of the zodiac while the persian monarch attempted the wonders of his art and power he received an epistle from an obscure citizen of mecca inviting him to acknowledge mahomet as the apostle of god he rejected the invitation and tore the epistle it is thus exclaimed the arabian prophet that god will tear the kingdom and reject the supplications of chosros placed on the verge of the two great empires of the east mohammed observed with a secret joy the progress of their mutual destruction and in the midst of the persian triumphs he ventured to foretell that before many years should elapse victory should again return to the banners of the romans at the time when this prediction is said to have been delivered no prophecy could be more distant from its accomplishment since the first twelve years of heraclius announced the approaching dissolution of the empire if the motives of chosros had been pure and honorable he must have ended the quarrel with the death of phocus and he would have embraced as his best ally the fortunate african who had so generously avenged the injuries of his benefactor maurice the prosecution of the war revealed the true character of the barbarian and the suppliant embassies of heraclius to beseech his clemency that he would spare the innocent accept a tribute and give peace to the world were rejected with contemptuous silence or insolent menace syria egypt and the provinces of asia were subdued by the persian arms while europe from the confines of istria to the long wall of thrace was oppressed by the avars unsatiated with the blood and rapine of the italian war they had coolly massacred their male captives in the sacred field of pannonia the women and children were reduced to servitude and the noblest virgins were abandoned to the promiscuous lust of the barbarians the amorous matron who opened the gates of Friuli passed a short night in the arms of her royal lover the next evening romilda was condemned to the embraces of twelve avars and the third day the lombard princess was impaled in the sight of the camp while the chagan observed with a cruel smile that such a husband was the fit recompense of her lewdness and perfidy by these implacable enemies heraclius on either side was insulted and besieged and the roman empire was reduced to the walls of constantinople with the remnant of greece italy and africa and some maritime cities from tyre to trebizond of the asiatic coast after the loss of egypt the capital was afflicted by famine and pestilence and the emperor incapable of resistance and hopeless of relief had resolved to transfer his person and government to the more secure residence of carthage his ships were already laden with the treasures of the palace but his flight was arrested by the patriarch who armed the powers of religion in the defence of his country led heraclius to the altar of st sophia and exhorted a solemn oath that he would live and die with the people whom god had entrusted to his care the chagan was encamped in the plains of thrace but he dissembled his perfidious designs and solicited an interview with the emperor near the town of heraclea their reconciliation was celebrated with equestrian games the senate and the people in their gayest apparel resorted to the festival of peace and the avars beheld with envy and desire the spectacle of roman luxury of a sudden the hippodrome was encompassed by the scythian cavalry who had pressed their secret and nocturnal march 
the tremendous sound of the Chagan's whip gave the signal of the assault, and Heraclius, wrapping his diadem round his arm, was saved with the extreme hazard by the fleetness of his horse. So rapid was the pursuit that the Avars almost entered the golden gate of Constantinople with the flying crowds, but the plunder of the suburbs rewarded their treason, and they transported beyond the Danube two hundred and seventy thousand captives. On the shore of Chalcedon the emperor held a safer conference with a more honorable foe, who before Heraclius descended from his gallery saluted with reverence and pity the majesty of the purple. The friendly offer of Sain, the Persian general, to conduct an embassy to the presence of the great king, was accepted with the warmest gratitude, and the prayer for pardon and peace was humbly presented by the praetorian prefect, the prefect of the city, and one of the first ecclesiastics of the patriarchal church. But the lieutenant of Chosros had fatally mistaken the intentions of his master, it was not an embassy, said the tyrant of Asia, it was the person of Heraclius, bound in chains, that he should have brought to the foot of my throne. I will never give peace to the emperor of Rome, till he had abjured his crucified God, and embraced the worship of the sun. Sain was flayed alive, according to the inhuman practice of his country, and the separate and rigorous confinement of the ambassadors violated the law of nations, and the faith of an express stipulation." Yet the experience of six years at length persuaded the Persian monarch to renounce the conquest of Constantinople, and to specify the annual tribute or ransom of the Roman Empire, a thousand talents of gold, a thousand talents of silver, a thousand silk robes, a thousand horses, and a thousand virgins. Heraclius subscribed these ignominious terms, but the time and space which he obtained to collect such treasures from the poverty of the East was industriously employed in the preparations of a bold and desperate attack. Of the characters conspicuous in history, that of Heraclius is one of the most extraordinary and inconsistent. In the first and last years of a long reign, the emperor appears to be the slave of sloth, of pleasure, or of superstition, the careless and impotent spectator of the public calamities. But the languid mists of the morning and evening are separated by the brightness of the meridian sun. The Arcadius of the palace arose the Caesar of camp, and the honor of Rome and Heraclius was gloriously revived by the exploits and trophies of six adventurous campaigns. It was the duty of the Byzantine historians to have revealed the causes of his slumber and vigilance. At this distance we can only conjecture that he was endowed with more personal courage than political resolution, that he was detained by the charms, and perhaps the arts, of his niece Martina, with whom, after the death of Eudocia, he contracted an incestuous marriage, and that he yielded to the base advice of the counsellors, who urged as a fundamental law that the life of the emperor should never be exposed in the field. Perhaps he was awakened by the last insolent demand of the Persian conqueror, but at the moment when Heraclius assumed the spirit of a hero, the only hopes of the Romans were drawn from the vicissitudes of fortune, which might threaten the proud prosperity of Chosros, and must be favorable to those who had attained the lowest period of depression. To provide for the expenses of war was the first care of the emperor, and for the purpose of collecting the tribute, he was allowed to solicit the benevolence of the eastern provinces. But the revenue no longer flowed in the usual channels, the credit of an arbitrary prince is annihilated by his power, 
and the courage of Heraclius was first displayed in daring to borrow the consecrated wealth of churches, under the solemn vow of restoring, with usury, whatever he had been compelled to employ in the service of religion and the empire. The clergy themselves appear to have sympathized with the public distress, and the discreet patriarch of Alexandria, without admitting the precedent of sacrilege, assisted his sovereign by the miraculous or seasonable revelation of a secret treasure. Of the soldiers who had conspired with Phocas, only two were found to have survived the stroke of time and the barbarians. The loss, even of these seditious veterans, was imperfectly supplied by the new levies of Heraclius, and the gold of the sanctuary united, in the same camp, the names and arms and languages of the east and west. He would have been content with the neutrality of the Avars, and his friendly entreaty, that the Chegan would act not as the enemy but as the guardian of the empire, was accompanied with a more persuasive donation of two hundred thousand pieces of gold. Two days after the festival of Easter, the emperor, exchanging his purple for the simple garb of a penitent and warrior, gave the signal of his departure. To the faith of the people Heraclius recommended his children. The civil and military powers were vested in the most deserving hands, and the discretion of the patriarch and senate was authorized to save or surrender the city, if they should be oppressed in his absence by the superior forces of the enemy. The neighboring heights of Chalcedon were covered with tents and arms, but if the new levies of Heraclius had been rashly led to the attack, the victory of the Persians in the sight of Constantinople might have been the last day of the Roman Empire. As imprudent would it have been to advance into the provinces of Asia, leaving their innumerable cavalry to intercept his convoys, and continually to hang on the lassitude and disorder of his rear. But the Greeks were still masters of the sea. A fleet of galleys, transports, and store-ships was assembled in the harbor. The barbarians consented to embark. A steady wind carried them through the Hellespont. The western and southern coast of Asia Minor lay on their left hand. The spirit of their chief was first displayed in a storm, and even the eunuchs of his train were excited to suffer and to work by the example of their master. He landed his troops on the confines of Syria and Cilicia, in the Gulf of Scandaroon, where the coast suddenly turns to the south, and his discernment was expressed in the choices of this important post. From all sides the scattered garrisons of the maritime cities and the mountains might repair with speed and safety to his imperial standard. The natural fortifications of Cilicia protected, and even concealed, the camp of Heraclius, which was pitched near Issus, on the same ground where Alexander had vanquished the host of Darius. The angle which the emperor occupied was deeply indented into a vast semicircle of the Asiatic, Armenian, and Syrian provinces, and to whatsoever point of the circumference he should direct his attack, it was easy for him to dissemble his own motions, and to prevent those of the enemy." In the camp of Issus, the Roman general reformed the sloth and disorder of the veterans, and educated the new recruits in the knowledge and practice of military virtue. Unfolding the miraculous image of Christ, he urged them to revenge the holy altars, which had been profaned by the worshippers of fire, addressing them by the endearing appellations of sons and brethren. He deplored the public and private wrongs of the Republic." The subjects of a monarch were persuaded that they fought in the cause of freedom, 
and a similar enthusiasm was communicated to the foreign mercenaries, who must have viewed with equal indifference the interest of Rome and of Persia. Heraclius himself, with the skill and patience of a centurion, inculcated the lessons of the school of tactics, and the soldiers were assiduously trained in the use of their weapons, and the exercises and evolutions of the field. The cavalry and infantry in light or heavy armor were divided into two parties. The trumpets were fixed in the center, and their signals directed the march, the charge, the retreat or pursuit, the direct or oblique order, the deep or extended phalanx, to represent in fictitious combat the operations of genuine war. Whatever hardships the emperor imposed on the troops, he inflicted with equal severity on himself. Their labor, their diet, their sleep were measured by the inflexible rules of discipline, and without despising the enemy, they were taught to repose an implicit confidence in their own valor and the wisdom of their leader. Cilicia was soon encompassed with the Persian arms, but their cavalry hesitated to enter the defiles of Mount Taurus, till they were circumvented by the evolutions of Heraclius, who insensibly gained their rear, whilst he appeared to present his front in order of battle. By a false motion, which seemed to threaten Armenia, he drew them, against their wishes, to a general action. They were tempted by the artful disorder of his camp, but when they advanced to combat, the ground, the sun, and the expectation of both armies were unpropitious to the barbarians. The Romans successfully repeated their tactics in a field of battle, and the event of the day declared to the world that the Persians were not invincible, and that a hero was invested with the purple. Strong in victory and fame, Heraclius boldly ascended the heights of Mount Taurus, directed his march through the plains of Cappadocia, and established his troops for the winter season in safe and plentiful quarters on the banks of the river Halys. His soul was superior to the vanity of entertaining Constantinople with an imperfect triumph, but the presence of the emperor was indispensably required to soothe the restless and rapacious spirit of the Avars. Since the days of Scipio and Hannibal, no bolder enterprise has been attempted than that which Heraclius achieved for the deliverance of the empire. He permitted the Persians to oppress for a while the provinces, and to insult with impunity the capital of the east, while the Roman emperor explored his perilous way through the Black Sea, and the mountains of Armenia, penetrated into the heart of Persia, and recalled the armies of the great king to the defense of their bleeding country. With a select band of five thousand soldiers, Heraclius sailed from Constantinople to Trebizond, assembled his forces which had wintered in the Pontic regions, and from the mouth of the Phasis to the Caspian Sea, encouraged his subjects and allies to march with the successor Constantine under the faithful and victorious banner of the cross. When the legions of Lucullus and Pompey first passed the Euphrates, they blushed at their easy victory over the natives of Armenia but the long experience of war had hardened the minds and bodies of that effeminate people. Their zeal and bravery were approved in the service of a declining empire, they abhorred and feared the usurpation of the house of Sassan, and the memory of persecution envenomed their pious hatred of the enemies of Christ. The limits of Armenia, as it had been ceded to the Emperor Maurice, extended as far as the Araxes. The river submitted to the indignity of a bridge, and Heraclius, in the footsteps of Mark Antony, advanced towards the city of Taurus, or Gonzaga, the ancient and modern capital of one of the provinces of Medea. 
At the head of forty thousand men, Chosroes himself had returned for some distant expedition to oppose the progress of the Roman arms, but he retreated on the approach of Heraclius, declining the generous alternative of peace or of battle. Instead of half a million of inhabitants, which would have been ascribed to Taurus under the reign of the Sophis, the city contained no more than three thousand houses, but the value of the royal treasures was enhanced by a tradition that they were the spoils of Croesus, which had been transported by Cyrus from the citadel of Sardis. The rapid conquests of Heraclius were suspended only by the winter season, a motive of prudence or superstition, determined his retreat into the province of Albania, along the shores of the Caspian, and his tents were most probably pitched in the plains of Morgan, the favorite encampment of the Oriental princes. In the course of this successful inroad, he signaled the zeal and revenge of a Christian emperor. At his command, the soldiers extinguished the fire, and destroyed the temples of the Magi, the statues of Chosros, who aspired to divine honors, were abandoned to the flames, and the ruins of Thibarma or Ormia, which had given birth to Zoroaster himself, made some atonement for the injuries of the holy sepulchre. A purer spirit of religion was shown in the relief and deliverance of fifty thousand captives. Heraclius was rewarded by their tears and grateful acclamations, but this wise measure, which spread the fame of his benevolence, diffused the murmurs of the Persians against the pride and obstinacy of their own sovereign. End of chapter 46, part 3